Hi friends, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald. I am a PhD trauma researcher and a life coach, and it's my goal in life to change the way that we define and understand and treat trauma. Here's why. Trauma is not actually a sign of weakness or disorder. It's a biological response born of strength. Without it, we would not survive. So I think the first step towards healing is being able to see this so that we can stop shaming ourselves for being human. I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows. Each week we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal. We bring together my research with our lived experiences so that we can all better understand and cope with trauma. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee and join us. Hello, this is track, I don't know, 16? 16. This is exciting. Um, And we're going to talk about collective trauma and the pandemic. I'm I'm so glad that we're talking about this because this is literally, this has been on my mind a lot in the past week. So, you know, I was going to have a private session with you, but we'll do it here in the context of this letter. So I'm excited. Oh, good. Yay. Um, We have a couple of rewind things to um, talk about from last episode. Um, We want to talk about, I actually found where small T capital T comes from and it's fascinating. took me forever to trace that all the way back, but I want to talk about that. And then we also want to talk about parental alienation syndrome. Do you want to do that first or you want me to go? go. Um, So parental alienation syndrome is sort of a thing. So we said last week that it's not a thing and that's basically true. It's been... Um, It was introduced by a child psychiatrist named Richard Gardner in 1985, who's a wildly controversial figure. And his work is also controversial um, for reasons having to do with its validity and reliability. Um, He was using that term to sort of describe a particular dynamic that happens sometimes in families where there's a divorce going on and the, the child sort of inexplicably displays some behavior of being influenced by their parent in an unethical way. His work has been dismissed. He's been dismissed by the scientific community um, basically entirely, but courts still use the term parental alienation syndrome um, to describe a particular kind of dynamic. They're using it descriptively, not diagnostically. So it's not a legitimate diagnostic, but if you do kind of see it in a legitimate like situation, that's probably why. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And I, I think the reason I brought it up is because they were talking about it in the Woody Allen and Mia Mm. Farrow, um, HBO special. And, and that, that that was a big part of Woody Allen's defense for the, um, the trial when he was accused of sexually abusing his young daughter. So it's just, you know, it's, I think it's important to try and understand these terms and where they come from, you know, as we throw them around and, um, you know, make sense of the, the the origin and kind of what we're saying and what we're talking about. But yeah, you're totally right. And I know even in my husband's um, uh, settlement agreement, you know, in his divorce, there, there was very specific language about, you know, each parent not alienating the child from the other parent and the language they use and the behavior they exhibit. So it's definitely a thing and it's important in um, certain circumstances. So thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. um, Language is so important in these terms. Like, again, they get like just 
scooped out of a situation, plucked out of like a, a context, and then they get used in this other way. And it's like, wait a second, what are we talking about? You know? Right. They become popular. Like they catch on and it's, yeah. um, we, don't, we don't really understand them. Totally. The, um, and so that brings us to the capital T, lowercase t trauma. The beginning of this is super fascinating. So like I said, it, this was really hard to trace back. But um, the person who first used that term in the 80s was Dr. Shapiro, who is the developer of EMDR, eye movement and reprocessing, wait, EMDR, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing, which is super interesting. I always trip over the ordering of that. And I was just reading that she's like, I really wish I had named it something else because... (laughs) Because it's, <laughs> it's hard. Accurate. It doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, but she was in it. And I went back and actually read the, the paper. It was super interesting. So EMDR is a protocol that's used for, um, it was developed by her in the 80s and it's used for acute trauma. And it helps you sort of reprioritize your brain function so that you're, you can kind of like recalibrate your alarm system, essentially. She in this paper was describing um, that, you know, she was getting funding and they were doing work for only sexual assault and combat trauma that in the eighties, the DSM specified, those were the only two things that were clinically legitimately traumatic. And she was noticing that there was this subset of traumas in her patients that had to do with like, kind of, I'm putting this in scare quotes, like lesser traumas, like things that weren't combat or sexual assault, but that had the same result on the, the personality of the person experiencing it. And so um, she, in her work was trying to legitimize that kind of trauma, even though the clinical community wouldn't count it as trauma. And so that's where she said, as kind of a, like a, an afterthought in this paper, she's like, you know, there's the big T trauma, right? The things we clinically recognize, but then there's this smaller T trauma, which is still legitimate and still has the same effects. And we should use EMDR here too. Mm -hmm. So she was just trying to like expand the use of her protocol. And we now know that it is wildly useful in cases that, you know, that are not just combat or sexual assault, but um, we, it's interesting to me because we use it often to shame each other and ourselves. Right and create these like hierarchies. This trauma is better or worse than that trauma. And my trauma isn't legit because my partner has this other trauma and all this other stuff. But um, her purpose in making that distinction was actually the opposite. It was to level the playing field. Well, that's what we talked about last week, you know, with the weaponizing and, you know, now people are using it to say, you know, my trauma is better than your trauma, na, 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 na. Or, you know, the parental alienation syndrome becomes a, a, um, Mm-hmm. A, a defense right. or, or, you know, and it's, it's exactly what we're saying that, that um, you can't weaponize these things. They're right. just for understanding, right. understanding, not yes. using against each other. Exactly. Totally. Our words matter. Yeah, they right. do. So I think that's all for that stuff. Do you want to jump into the letter? Sure. So the, uh, this letter is from frustrated and worried and um, it starts dear trauma tapes. I'll get right to the point. Are we all going to have PS, PTSD, sorry, PTSD after these terrible two years? I live in New York, and though things have calmed down a whole lot since the beginning of the pandemic, I still find myself jumping and feeling panic when I hear a siren or a helicopter. The news is basically a horror show in terms of politics and gun violence, and everyone is talking about trauma all the time. 
When I think about myself over this last year and a bit, I notice major changes in myself and the way I see things. I don't really think about the future at all anymore. I don't plan exciting things. I don't really have hope. I get that we are supposed to focus on tiny little joys, and I do that, and it really has helped. Humor especially works. If I can laugh a little each day, I notice that I feel more calm and present. I can't picture the future at all. I'm jumpy and nervous about everything. I have totally wild nightmares, and I have never had those in my life. Is this PTSD? How far, how can I possibly heal from it when it's going on all the time? I've even heard people talking about trauma getting into our genes and getting passed down to our children and their children, even if they didn't live through the pandemic. How do we heal as a country and a world? Is that even possible or, or are we just doomed? What does the landscape look like if most of us have PTSD forever? Signed, frustrated and worried. Okay. I love this question. It's super important. Why were you thinking about it this week before I jump into all the things? Because like in, in this past week, I have recognized that I feel unsafe. I don't like, I don't, that's not my, you know, I, I'm not a jumpy person. I'm, um, I, I, I'm not nervous. I don't, I don't um, get rattled by my surroundings. I lived in the city for most of my life. I'm hyper aware of things going on around me. And I have felt unsafe in certain circumstances before, you know, in, in a relationship or in a, you know, a, a certain situation, I felt unsafe, but I feel like globally unsafe. Mm-hmm. And that's just like very recently occurred to me. And then I've immediately thought, well, of course you feel unsafe. Like the world doesn't feel safe right now. Yeah. So is that a direct result? Yes, it is. I'll answer my question. Yes, it's a direct result of what's going on yeah. around me. But it was just, I've never experienced that before. I've never yeah. felt that before. It's such a good way to say that because it's, um, it's like, oh, wait a second. Like you're noticing as the letter writer talks about, like, I'm different. Yeah. And that's like, what does that mean? And is this forever? And how do I fix it? And all this other stuff, you know, um, which is, you know, yeah, it's funny. Cause I was thinking about, um, I have never really paid like close attention to the amount of toilet paper I have in my home. Like I just... <laughs> You know, you have an extra pack of toilet paper. It's like not a big, I've never thought about it. You know what I mean? It's never been an issue. Like you have lived in cities for most of my life. There's always something close to get stuff, but I now have to have like 52 rolls of toilet paper in order to feel like remotely (laughs) okay. Because there were so many weeks that, you know, you couldn't get anything in any store. And it was like, it was just such a funny, what a funny, and I was thinking to myself, like, what a funny little trace this has left, you know? Yeah. See, I I always had 52 rolls of toilet paper. So I. (laughs) You were somehow born with that concern. I don't know. We should talk about that. (laughs) That became a family joke that that everyone was asking me for toilet paper because I've always, for some reason, had to have a lot of toilet paper. Yeah, there's probably something very deep there. <laughs> Scarcity mentality. Who knows? That's so funny. That um, I think we have to. We okay. Not I think we have to draw the distinction between like the traces that trauma leaves on our lives and a clinical diagnosis of PTSD because they're not the same, right? All of our experience leaves traces on our lives. That's how our brain works. 
right? Funny things that happen to you, good things that happen to you leave traces. And so the traces themselves aren't necessarily indicative of pathology, you know, like this is going to, I mean, this changed the world, right? Like the, the world will never be the same. There is no kind of going back to normal. I think we, most of us have kind of realized that at this point it's changed the world. Like this is, this is, that's just a fact, but um, it's really important to understand that the traces do not equal a diagnosis of PTSD and they aren't a sign of dysfunction and they aren't a sign of even distress necessarily, you know, like it's, kind of funny to me that I'm like, oh, I apparently I need to have 52 rolls of toilet paper now. Like <laughs> that's not something that inspires distress, but if I have the wrong understanding of PTSD and, and trauma, and I can't distinguish between them, then I might say, I might take that to mean I have a mental illness, right? Right. Which is true in other ways, <laughs> but not this one. Um, and I think like, you know, just to so the numbers are not perfect because numbers never are. And this is also an unprecedented time in history, but it's worth kind of noticing the scope, which is that given a traumatic situation, something that's widely considered to be traumatic, 80% of the people will go through that traumatic event and come out without any lasting traces of, of trauma, without any pathology, without any distress. It doesn't mean that event didn't change their lives. It just means it didn't result in this disorder. PTSD is a disorder, which is a problematic way to think about it, but we'll talk about that in a minute. 80% of the people who go through a traumatic event do not have come out with PTSD. 20% do. 20% is a big number. And that, especially when we're dealing with something that is a global situation that's happening to all of us at the same time, 20% of everyone is a big number of people, which makes it even more necessary and urgent that we understand trauma and how to deal with it. That's always been true, but it's even more true now, you know? Um, but I think that 80, 20 number, which again, the number might change because we haven't been through anything like this. And the letter writer points out that there's a lot of layers to this. It's not just the pandemic, it's the political unrest, it's financial insecurity, it's, you know, all sorts of gun violence, all sorts of stuff. Um, but I think we need to keep those numbers in mind. We are not all going to have PTSD after this. Not, no way. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. We will all have traces because this is a life-changing experience. So we're all going to have little things and they might range from funny to uncomfortable to potentially problematic in some way. But even then, it still doesn't mean you have a full-blown diagnosis of PTSD. Does that make sense? It does. And I, I'm thinking of um, your definition of trauma as uh, an experience that doesn't have a relational home. Yeah. And we're all in this together. Right. So, you know, you can... Would that not help in that in this situation? That it it it's interesting because a lot of the research on collective trauma shows that um, yes, it does help if your community, if you can relate with your community, and and especially in person. Oh, okay. So this so is obviously well. <laughs> challenging, right? Because some of the things that help are like having um, tactile contact with people like giving somebody a hug or patting them on the shoulder or like just being in their proximity. And we don't have that. So there, there is a part of this. And I don't want to like undermine that, that remains to be seen. We haven't dealt with a collective trauma that results in, in all of us staying in our houses and away from each other for over a year. But what about the, the, uh, okay. So this makes me think of September 11th a little bit and, you know, anyone who lived through, through that experience mm -hmm. that week, um, I believe September 11th, 2001 was a Tuesday. Yeah, I was. Yep. And I distinctly remember like no one kind of leaving their house for a couple of days. 
Yeah. And then I remember um, Friday, Yeah, you know, being in social situations and there was a lot of like yeah. talk and hugs and understanding. Yeah. And yes, this is, you know, a much longer time than three days. Yeah. You know, this is extended, but can't we have hope for the fact that we are getting to a point where where we will be able to relate face to face and discuss how it impacted us mm-hmm. and help each other heal? Oh, totally. And I think like we we need to talk about post-traumatic growth because that's a huge, that's also waiting on the other side. And that's, that is a reality. That is a real thing. People do grow after trauma. So yeah, I mean, I think that's totally possible. I want to um, go through, is this, is it too boring to look at what PTSD actually is? No, not at all. Okay. I'll do this really quickly. And as just tell me if I'm being too boring, <laughs> stop it. The, um, so we, there's like this, a lot of like permeability between the clinical world and the world of psychology that we like, that's just like colloquial conversation. Like we think we can access, we think they're the same, you know what I mean? But they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, so this happens a lot of times with like, you know, everyone's talking about narcissism right now and everyone's trying to diagnose everyone else as a narcissist. Um, you can't do that. We've talked about that. (laughs) That's not how that works. (laughs) Um, and here's why the, the way that, first of all, the DSM in itself, the diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders is widely criticized and is hugely problematic by very well-respected people in the field. So diagnostics is kind of a problem just in general. So we'll just say that and bracket that off. But, um, in order to be clinically diagnosed with PTSD, you have to meet a certain number of criteria in order to get the full diagnosis. So sometimes we'll see this idea that like, oh, I'm having nightmares. I have PTSD. That's one of the symptoms that's, you might want to look at the other symptoms to see if those are also true, but the, you can't get a clinical diagnosis for a good reason with just one um, symptom. The same is true of narcissism, right? So if you're being particularly selfish because you're 18 and that's what it is like to be 18, that's just, you're just an 18 year old. (laughs) You have to go check and make sure all of the other things are there. So I just want to go through, because I think there's a lot of talk about PTSD and no one really looks at these criteria. Like, what are they? So the first is that you have a traumatic stressor, right? Check that box. We, we are under traumatic stress because, and this is just clinically like not a question. The things that meet the criteria for being a traumatic stressor are the person was exposed to death or threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or actual or threatened sexual violence. We are in danger of death and we have been for over a year and we have seen it. Mm-hmm. And when you're in living in New York and you're hearing those sirens, you're part of that experience, that death, even if it's not occurring to you or your immediate family is part of your world in a way that's not normal. So boom, check that box. Uh, the second criteria, intrusion symptoms. Here's where we get nightmares. The event is re-experienced in some sort of intrusive way, right? So that could be like upsetting memories that happen when you're trying to like live your day-to-day work life, nightmares, flashbacks, all that kind of stuff. Um, that might be true as well, right? Lots of people are reporting nightmares, but again, we need to figure out what the source of the nightmares is. There's a lot of different theories about that right now. And I think we don't really know. The third criteria is avoidance. So you have to start avoiding trauma-related stimuli, right? So it's not just that you notice that there's sirens. Maybe it's that you try to like move away from the city because the 
the presence of sirens in a normal city environment is so upsetting that you're finding yourself like panicked all day long. You know what I mean? Okay. The next one is negative alterations in cognition and mood. And this has to be like kind of a, an ongoing thing. This could be overly negative thoughts about yourself in the world, exaggerated blame of yourself or others for causing the trauma, just a general negative affect. So just being kind of negative Decreased interest in your activities, which can be mistaken for depression, a feeling of isolation, which unfortunately is just part of the situation, and a difficulty experiencing any kind of positive affect. So any hope or joy or humor, all that kind of stuff. And then the next one, the last one is um, alterations in arousal and reactivity. So what you were describing a minute ago about being jumpier, right? That's one of the symptoms, irritability or aggression, risky or destructive behavior, hypervigilance, heightened startle reaction, difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping. The other thing that the DSM requires is there's, there's gotta be a duration of the symptoms. So if you watch a scary movie and you are jumpy for a couple of days, that does not mean you have PTSD. If the jumpiness lasts for six months and you've got all these other symptoms, then maybe that's going on. Right. So you may have one or two of these that would be completely normal given what's going on in order to get a diagnosis of PTSD. You have to have all of them. All of these criteria are required for PTSD, Uh, something from each category. I mean, and wouldn't the stressful event need to be over and you would have to be out of (sighs) to determine that there's like two schools of thought on that. Some people think you can diagnose in it, Some people think you do have to wait. There's like a temporality thing for that. I don't know what I think about that. It kind of depends. Okay. I think when the stress is ongoing, especially right now, like a lot of these things are just going to be normal. And that's, you know, you also have to kind of compare things to the general, like people around you, right? So if you're like a little bit hypervigilant and you're having some nightmares, but so is everybody else. Like one of the reasons we talk, one of the reasons the DSM exists is so that we can compare symptoms across populations. So if everybody is experiencing what you're experiencing, it's probably just a normal like facet of the human experience and not as something that indicates disorder. Okay. You know, if you're being chased by a mountain lion, it is normal to be amped. Like, (laughs) you know, um, you wouldn't call that a sign of disorder. And this is again, again, like this is this, this question of like where to actually diagnose and what counts as distress and where a disorder like actually um, finds itself is a huge problem across diagnostics. Like that's just something that people argue about still. What are you thinking? (laughs) This is a tough one because, you know, a lot of the things that you mentioned are things that are just naturally happening as a result of current events. Yeah. And we don't know what the lasting impression is going to be. Right. Because we're not out of it yet. Right. But we do know in the last 120 years that in any given traumatic situation, regardless of how widespread it was, about 80% of the people come out without any lasting trauma. That doesn't mean the experience doesn't leave traces on their lives. It means they don't have this full-blown disorder, right? There's a functional significance criteria, which just means the symptoms have to actually create distress or impairment, right? So this has to be interrupting your life. If what you're describing is just part of like human existence and in a way that's not really disrupting your life, then a clinician is going to be like, well, you're going through what we're all going through. And that's, that's psychologically strange for all of us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there is a disorder, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a really like good point. And I've been thinking about that too. Like, how do you like there in my own life, there are things that um occasionally come up that make me sad because of mm-hmm. you know what we've been through. And then there are things that where I have a completely overblown reaction to what appears to be a normal set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that just makes me sad once in a while, I just chalk up to this is my story and, you know, this is why I feel this way right now. Yeah. When I find myself having like a really strong reaction mm-hmm. to something, th- that's when I need to like look at yeah. what's going on and try to understand it. Totally. So that's the difference for me. I, you know, I can't speak for yeah. anyone else, but you, you kind of have to have that your own line in the sand, I think. Totally. And that's, that's why the, like the, the, the experience of the patient matters so much. Diagnostics is, is kind of inherently flawed because we're trying to point from outside at the problem. Right. And so often we disregard what the baseline was to begin with, you know? Right. And so I think I've talked about this before, but like, if I take a test, if, and I have right in a psychiatrist office, I will be diagnosed with OCD. I, I fall on the spectrum of having OCD. And so I had a psychiatrist once try to medicate me for this. I don't, it does not. <laughs> if you have OCD life. that like, I'm like off the fucking chart. <laughs> like what? Yeah. Wow. You've just never been screened. Well, no, thank you. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I had an argument with the psychiatrist because he was like, well, here's the medication. And, he, and I was like, hold on. This wow. doesn't, this doesn't impact my life in any negative way. Right. right. It's a part of, you know, anxiety in some sense. And that's a whole other thing we could talk about, but, um, but I'm not going to be medicated for a thing that I'm not experiencing as distress. Right. But it, but it's, it was a clash, right? Like then I'm, I'm coming up against the clinical understanding of what counts as distress, what counts as dysfunction. That's fascinating. Yeah. And OCD, by the way, is not just like that you like to keep things clean or whatever. It's that you have a set of beliefs about what that means. You're like, yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm afraid of what my score would be. But see, like, it doesn't matter because if this is a thing that doesn't cause you distress, then it doesn't, it's not, it's not significant, but this is a huge argument in the whole field of psychiatry and psychology. People are just like, what do we do with this? Because can you then extrapolate that argument when you're talking to someone who's experiencing schizophrenic hallucination and, and they are reporting from that space that they are not distressed, which is very rare. It usually is incredibly distressful, distressing. It would be the word that I'm looking for, um, for the person, but if it's not experienced as, as distressed, then, you know, is this impairing? Is this something that we medicate? It's even more confusing when you get to things like hypomania in bipolar two, right? Like, which is sort of like a lower mania that doesn't usually result in catastrophic behavior, but is, you know, beyond what most of us would experience. And so do you medicate that if the patient doesn't think it's causing them distress, but it's causing some disorder in their life. You know what I mean? It's just, it's really confusing. It is confusing. And I I would think in extreme situations, you would also have to take into account um, the people in the patient's life. Yeah. And that's, and on, and also the clinical perception, right? If I'm saying I'm spending $5,000 a weekend, you know, randomly a couple times a year, and that's, 
I don't find that upsetting, but my financial life is in ruins because of that. Then someone else needs to say like, okay, I understand you don't experience that as distress, but that is actually causing impairment in your life. Like from an objective perspective, it's a very confusing, like thing. It's a moving target. And, and you, uh, you know, you can't, I guess you can't always decide for yourself where your line in the sand is. Right. It's hard. It is hard. And I, like, I just, I want to like kind of underscore that, like, this is when we throw around these terms in our everyday language and on social media and things like we need to kind of understand that we don't know what the fuck we're talking about and that the people who have spent their entire lives and set their whole careers on understanding this and getting it right are still arguing about these things that we are taking for granted because we don't have the education. Right. So when you use a term, like what, what are you tapping into? What history are you tapping into? When you talk about parental alienation syndrome, what, what does that word mean? Not just in this moment, but what has it meant and where did it come from and what is its history? You know what I mean? It's, well, it's, it's like people have kind of set up like guardrails in a little in, yeah. in a way, but yeah. they're not hard, fast set boundaries all the time. Right. And I think like, again, like it's, it's nuance. I always say this, we need more nuance. So the answer then isn't just to throw it away and stop talking about it. The answer is to do it correctly and with more nuance. And so like, if you are noticing tendencies of narcissism in the people who you spend time with, what are the tendencies? What's the pattern? Where's that coming from? Why is that interest? It's super important to be able to have that knowledge. It's just, are you waving it around like a sword or are you, you, you know, turning it into a microscope to actually understand your life, you know? Right. That's, that's the biggest difference. Are you, is it for understanding or is it to, to call someone a name? Right. Is it to weaponize? Right. Yourself included, you know? Right. Right. Probably. Okay. So we talked a little bit about collective trauma, but I just want to kind of point out again, that that is a thing. There's biological I always do that biographical trauma, which happens to our individual lives. Um, but there's also collective trauma and this is not new. This has been, you know, obviously you can think about things. The Holocaust is an example of collective trauma, right? September 11th, collective trauma, racial unrest in our country during the civil rights movement. And today collective trauma, all these things meet mm-hmm. the definition And there's really interesting um, and hopeful research about what to do about collective trauma, which has to do a lot with finding community. Again, the same idea of a relational home, just on a larger scale, finding community, making positive change, feeling empowered, um, learning how to take down systems of power, if that's the thing you're dealing with, um, how to grieve together, how to grow, all that stuff. And we've been a little bit limited in that in this last year and a half, year and a bit almost year and a half, sort of, maybe I can't count year and a bit, (laughs) Um, but we, but I think we also need to, we need to not only notice the lack, we also need to notice what has been present because there have been really amazing communities that have grown online and in spaces, despite the fact that we can't meet face-to-face where people have been doing some of this healing work. So this idea that we have to wait to heal until it's over, I think is not true. And we are already healing while it's happening. Okay. That's a good point. So that's really hopeful. And I think to go back to your point that you mentioned a little while ago, when it is over and we are more able to be face-to-face and like, this is where this would be a great time to really seize on that and actively intentionally try to heal as a collective, you know, right. Which could be world changing in, in almost the same like severity or whatever as the pandemic was. Exactly. 
you know, where we might be as a result of it. Right. Yeah. That's exciting. It is exciting. And to talk about the genetic piece, like, okay, so our experiences don't just leave traces in our like behavior. They also leave traces in our biology. Um, there's been lots of studies about this recently. Um, there's been a, an emphasis, an emphasis on studying, like what the early environment does to your biology. And they've found things I'll, I'll make this like very simple to say that if your mother is stressed while you're in the womb, this changes your biology. This does not mean if you are currently pregnant that you should freak out and try not to be stressed. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is that if we know that, then we know what that might lead to later and we can intervene in a more effective way. Okay. So just to give you an example of this, if you have early life stress, like if you are, have a baby during the pandemic, for example, you are at a higher level of stress than most people when they give birth. And so your baby will have a different stress reactivity system because of the way that your biology works. That's likely it's not guaranteed. We don't know these things like for sure, but this might express itself later as depression or anxiety or addiction in your child. Again, I know this sounds scary, but it's not a guarantee. Knowing that you can intervene faster and more effectively. Early intervention is critical in all things, right? If you notice ADHD or signs of autism in your child when they're young, the earlier you intervene, the more effective the intervention is. So from the research perspective, the more we know that, the more we can do. Because okay. One of the theories is that um, one of the reasons, so when SSRIs came out, um, they were diagnosed, they were kind of uh, prescribed to everybody because they were going to be a game changer. And in lots of situations, they are. And then in, in this whole subset of people, they were completely not effective at all. And nobody's understood why, because from like a chemical perspective, it should work whenever you have those symptoms. Um, but it doesn't, and that's confusing. And one of the theories now is that what looks like depression in adulthood, if it comes from early environment stress and early life trauma will look like depression or anxiety, but chemically be different. And so those medications will not work. That's not hopeless. It just means, okay, well then what will, and if we know mm -hmm. that now we can have new targets for treatment and personalized treatment based on your whole life story and your whole genetic profile. We can also kind of target and help treat pregnant mothers to avoid this as well. Does that sound like just terrifying? I think it's fascinating, but it does sound a little terrifying, but I, I think your point about it, just providing um, context, mm -hmm. you know, if we can kind of try and take the fear out of it, which I know might be very difficult, but if we can look at these things objectively, you know, without emotion or without reaction and just yes. say, this is what happened and and this, you know, could be a result and this is how it should yep. be addressed or how we might need to look at it. Yeah. And we've already it's done this and we already know this, right? Alcoholism is a great example. There's a genetic predisposition, predisposition for alcoholism <laughs> in our family line. Yeah. That doesn't mean we will all be alcoholics, right? It means that there's a predisposition and knowing that we can monitor our behavior differently and be less likely to suffer. Right. Knowledge is power, even when it's scary knowledge or knowledge that feels dark, you know? Exactly. So if you know that you had a lot of early life stress, this is not a sign that you're like screwed forever. And if we just focus on prevention, we're missing the point. We can't prevent trauma. We can heal. So to just move ex like to the extreme other side into hopefulness, there's a whole field of study on what's called post-traumatic growth 
which is this phenomenon that is real, that people who go through a traumatic event tend to experience extremely advanced, it's like, it's, it's almost like a psychological growth spurt in their lives that would not have been possible were it not for the trauma. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the, the, the growth is experienced across the whole spectrum of their life, not just in one area. So if you have a developmental trauma, you're not just going to have growth in, in development with relationships. You're going to have growth across your whole life. It doesn't restrict itself. You know what I mean? That's fascinating. I know it's super hopeful, but we miss it because we're focused on like, Oh, am I right? (laughs) Am I messed up forever? Is this hopeless? Which makes sense. I'm not like, um, I'm not, you know, criticizing that. I think that's a very natural thing, but it's not the whole story. Right. So people who have experienced trauma actually exhibit greater optimism, more of a positive affect and satisfaction with their social support, as well as increases in the number of social support resources. So going through trauma also makes you more resilient. Obviously not everyone goes through post-traumatic growth. That's important to understand, but Uh, We can make it much more likely if we understand more about trauma and how to heal and what a support system looks like. If we go back to that concept of a relational home, how can we do that for each other right now? And I Mm -hmm. think in a way, going back to this question of like, okay, well, we're all going through this. So don't we automatically have a relational home built in? Not necessarily. And in a way, like, because we're all going through this, it's really easy to trample over someone else's experience and say, well, I had it worse because I lost my job or... I had it worse because I got COVID or I lost my grandmother to COVID and you didn't have anyone in your immediate life who had that. And so what the hell are you complaining about? You know, um, which is why it's so important to really like address and attack like shame because if we don't, we don't heal. Right. What are you thinking? <laughs> I don't know what that face means. No, it's, it, it makes sense. What you're saying makes sense. It's um, I'm just trying to think of like a way to like summarize it. Like, because it it is it can be terrifying and it can be overwhelming and it can be you know we don't know yeah where to put it or what to think or what to feel or why we're feeling a certain way or why we're having nightmares but yeah. you know it's um I guess there isn't like a like a quick fast hard answer it's a Mm-mm. yeah I mean and I think like maybe the the quick answer is to like trust your little brain it was built for this yeah. We are built to be resilient. We are built to handle stress. We have a stress response system. It's coping without us even knowing how cool is that? You know, when we were talking about like working memory and reaching for, were we talking about that on here? Where was I talking about that? What's that? Coping, like reaching for habits. I was writing about it. I don't remember if I talked about it anywhere. No. So here's a cool thing in the pandemic, right? Like we, um, this was, and this was such a funny thing to like observe. We picked up hobbies like instantly. Everyone was like, we, we, we need to like start baking sourdough. Let's, let's not just bake, let's bake the most complicated bread we can imagine. (laughs) Right. And like, let's learn how to sew and embroider things and cook and, you know, do these new exercises. Like, let's take this opportunity to like learn stuff. And we all just did that. Like no one came down from on high and said, Hey, you're going through a pandemic. You might want to pick up some hobbies. And part of it was that we were bored. Right. And all of a sudden, like our lives became quite small. But part of it is that our brains knew that we needed our prefrontal cortex to be online because we were overwhelmed. And your prefrontal cortex is the rational decision-making part of your brain. And when it is online and taken with doing something, taken up with doing something like figuring out how to work a recipe or learning how to sew or doing a puzzle or playing a game or whatever, 
um, your alarm system will quiet down because those mm-hmm. two things can't operate at full force at the same time in your brain because of the way the circuitry works. So we did that without knowing what we were doing. We cope naturally, right? There is an inherent impulse to do that. And I think this is what I was so like pissed off that it, there were all of these articles like immediately criticizing people for that. How dare you bake bread when people are dying? How dare you learn how to salsa dance? That's cultural appropriation. How dare you learn how to sew as if like, come on. Give us a break. That's what we're, that's what we need to do right now. Well, and it's just that we're missing the goddamn point, which is that we are built for this. And I think that's like, when we look at trauma as a disorder and there's a huge like sort of um, argument that it, that PTSD even is not actually a sign of disorder. It's a sign of function. When we look at it as a disorder, we miss that we are coping and that's just natural. I just think that's so cool, you know? Yeah, it is cool. And I also think that like, obviously the pandemic is an extreme example and, you know, everything that's going on in the world right now is an extreme example, but I've had this unique experience of, of leaving Boston for um, seven years and coming back. Mm-hmm. So being gone for seven years and then starting to reconnect with people mm-hmm. who I knew seven years ago, you know, yeah. and didn't necessarily keep in touch with during the meantime, in the meantime. Yeah. And hearing what they've been through in the past seven years. Yeah. And, you know, I assume that everyone's life was like hunky dory and that (laughs) they were exactly where I left them. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and what comes up again and again and again is that everyone goes through so much shit all the time. Like life just, and this sounds horrible and defeatist and I don't mean it to, but life just kicks you in the ass over and over and over again. Yeah. And not just you, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And I think when we try and fight that all the time, like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Da, 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 oh da, my da. God. Yeah. Not that we have to give up or give in to, you know, to bad things that happen, but, but we have to accept of, them to heal. Like exactly. Yeah. That's the human experience. Right. You know, there there is death and loss and divorce and um, you know, illness. illness and terrible things that happen to everyone, you know, yeah. all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have to stop fighting it. We have well, to and stop. And it's also like, and yet, and in the face of all of that, there is still humor exactly. and joy and connection and possibility and hope and infinite, all of that stuff too, you know? Right. Right. But if we can get more comfortable mm-hmm. with, the the life experiences that happen to everyone. Yeah. Instead of ignoring them, shutting down, fighting them, pushing against them. Yeah. If we can make that part of the story, if we can integrate that into our own story and our collective story. Yeah. Then I think we'll, it won't be so hard all the time. It won't feel yeah. so hard. It won't feel so difficult. Yeah, totally. When we resist, you create, friction and, and it's, um, it's super interesting. I was just, I don't, I like, I was thinking about, do I want to give this away? Cause this is, I'm writing about this right now, but, um, Muhammad Ali had this, uh, fight with George Foreman, who at the time was undefeated and it was called, you're like, why are you, why are you talking about boxing? <laughs> no, I'm like, Ali, all I can think of is the grill. Like I can't even imagine George Foreman fighting. I know that's what he did, but he was undefeated. He was a monster. He was giant. And his punches were like so powerful that people were actually like worried that Muhammad Ali was going to die in the ring. Wow. 
for this fight. And so there was this huge, like, you know, lead up to this fight and Muhammad Ali had the secret weapon, which is this method that he called the rope-a-dope. <laughs> <laughs> and he would lean against the, the ropes and let cover his face, right? Obviously. And let Foreman punch him. Oh, and he would just take it and he would take it and he would take it. And part of the power of the punch was being transferred into the rope. So it wasn't even as intense as it would have been if he was standing there on his, just on his two feet. And as he, and then he taunted Foreman. So he would whisper in his ear as he got close, you know, that's all you got, George. Oh boy! <laughs> he told me you could punch. And then he would sneak a jab to his face. And so oh, Foreman yeah. was frustrated and just kept punching, punching, punching and completely wore himself out. Wow. And then Muhammad Ali hit him with like two right hooks and then five, a five punch combo and the left hook and boom, he was down, down for the game. That's insane. And he won. And then they became like best friends, which is super cute. Um, but it was insane, but it was it's a super interesting metaphor for like, okay, this is, I'm going to get this punch. I I can stand here and I can fight against it and I can make myself, I can brace myself and try to reject it and talk about how I don't want it to be. Or I can just lean against the rope, push some of the power backwards and just go until this wave is done. You know what I mean? I love that. I know. It's like absorbing the the life's blows. Right. 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 Oh, I love that. I know. And getting power from it in a way. Right. Right. Wow. And subverting that power by addressing it and knowing it and being like, all right, I get it. You're powerful. How am I going to deal with this? Instead of being like bringing your ego in or like creating some traction or distraction or whatever, you know, like. Right. Or saying, I can't believe this guy is pummeling me, you know? Right. Oh, I love that. You know, that makes me think of. When we were skiing too, remember we used to ski and dad always used to say like, you have to absorb the the moguls, uh, the mountain, you have to bend your knees and like, yeah, because if you hit, (laughs) you'll get blasted. (laughs) If you hit one straight on, like, you know, straight as a board, (laughs) (laughs) you're going to get like blown into the sky. (laughs) You have to absorb it. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Wow. I love that. I know. Oh, I'm glad you shared that. So, and that obviously, like, I just, I'm like anticipating what sort of, you know, what, how, how that could be misinterpreted. That does not mean that violence is something you should just take. Right. Obviously it just means that life, life is life has, as I have a friend who says life has demand quality, right? Like there's going to be another wave. There's going to be another thing. You're not going to get to the place where these things stop happening. So, Okay. Yeah. Or are you going to go with it? Yeah. And you're not going to get to the point where you can say, I've had X many bad things happen, so I'm done. Right. So I've made a deal with the universe and it's over. No, it's not. <laughs> right. It keeps coming. Right. Which, you know, sucks. <laughs> it does so, suck. I wish it was, I wish it was otherwise. I said last night I was, there's this philosopher, um, Montaigne, who said he very famously that to philosophize is to learn how to die. And oh. I was thinking, you know, I, I've just that phrase, I just sort of love, cause you know, to think philosophically is to kind of come to grips with the fact that you are not permanent and how to yeah. deal with your mortality. And I think like, you know, to love, to connect is to learn how to grieve. Like you can't participate in life without being 
infinitely vulnerable, you know? Right. Right. And yeah, that sucks. But if you don't do it, you miss all the good stuff. Exactly. Good point. So we're not all going to be, we're not all going to have clinical diagnoses of PTSD. We are going to have traces from this. We don't know how many people are going to have PTSD and we can't prevent it. So the best thing to do is to keep listening to this podcast so we can understand it. Right. (laughs) Because the more we understand, the more likely it is we can provide a relational home that someone needs and the more we can facilitate their healing and our own. And we can take the shame out of it. Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, Tiny Little Joy, do you have one? I do. And mine's going to sound like it was like totally staged and planned and it was not because I swear to God, cause I didn't see the letter until, you know, right before we started recording. Um, and that's another thing I've been thinking about when, when I think of these, you know, that life just kicks you in the ass over and over and over again. If you don't seek these tiny little joys, yeah, like, you know, you're just going to be a miserable person. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You have to like, look for these things. Yeah. And, and not doing them. it and then wondering why you can't see them. Part, that's like being like, well, I don't know why I can't lift 250 pounds. Well, did you build the muscle necessary? Right. Did you start with five pounds and right. then 10 pounds? And Right. Right. Um, so mine is, and you and I talked about this last week, and it, so it's a little bit dated, but I'm still feeling the effects of it was getting my first vaccine. Yeah. And um, how amazing that was and how... Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about last week how we were kind of blown away with the process. And, mm-hmm. you know, you go to this school and it's, it's, there's all these volunteers and it's a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the person who gave me my vaccine was a National Guardsman in uniform and everyone is so kind and open. And it's, it was just like a really beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To kind of start for me, you know, the healing of yeah. or the moving through this experience that we've been living with for so yeah. long. And um I I I hate shots. I've been avoiding them my whole life. I'm not a vaccine person. <laughs> we like, had a very serious you know, chat about the flu shot a couple months ago because Lisa never has gotten one. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you're outing me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm a big weenie when it comes to to vaccines. Big weenie. <laughs> And I've realized as an adult that we you have a like needle have phobia. A, like we should I say a, that. Like that's I have a needle phobia. A thing. <laughs> Even though I've done like acupuncture and stuff and, you know, other needle related activities. But um, yeah, so I'm not a vaccine person, but it was such an amazing experience. And Mac and I were talking about last week, like it's kind of incredible the, the way that these vaccines have come to the market um, yeah. as quickly as they have. And I, I know there have been hiccups with with certain vaccines, but it's just it felt great. And I, I, I'm very excited to get the second one and to feel like I have a little bit of control in a situation that has felt out of control for a long time. Yay. Yay. It's a, it's like evidence of like, you know, this, and this is a thing, like, you know, how Mr. Rogers said, like, look for the helpers, right? Look for the triumph of the human spirit because it's there. When this started, there was, I remember all of this media stuff about we're not going to be able to make a vaccine. If we do, it's going to be 2023 before it is a thing. Like we have to like look at the speed and we just triumphed. Yeah, we did. Which doesn't mean of course that there hasn't been tremendous loss and all that kind of stuff, but it, it is, you have to look for the, the triumph part, you know? 
Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's emotional and it's, um, I'm very grateful. Yeah. Yay. That's a great one. Yay. Thanks. <laughs> um, okay. Mine is funny. The, I, so I was like, just couldn't, I had a headache this morning and I like, we couldn't get out of bed. And I was just like, ah, you know, that kind of thing you have. And, um, so I signed on, on Instagram while I was still in bed, which you're not supposed to do, but whatever. Everyone takes their phone to bed. It's fine. Um, and I couldn't wake up without my phone. I know I got this notification that, um, I don't even know how to find it. I was going to shout out the person, um, that someone had mentioned me in one of the stories, um, oh. in one of their stories. And I was like, Oh, cool. What does that mean? What are you doing? What are you saying? And, um, the person had, had picked out their tiny little joy. And they made their Instagram story about their tiny little joy, which was their sweater they were wearing. And then they added another story and they asked people what their tiny little joy was. And I I was like, that was such a cool way to wake up to be like, oh my God, people are like doing this thing that we talk about, like on their own, you know, and like making that a part of their day-to-day life and seeing this person like, and their, like, cause it was like a little video, you know, like their life. It was just such a cool, like powerful I don't know. It was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It was really neat. Um, Catching on. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's like how many people are noticing tiny little joys in a way that they wouldn't have because we're talking about it. Like what that's, we're making an impact. That's like, talk about emotional. That makes me want to cry. That's awesome. It's powerful. Yeah. Yay. I feel like, remember Parker Lewis, the synchronize your watches. Remember that show? No. Parker Lewis sings the blues. I don't know. Some random show in the, from the eighties. Um, I think now I'm going to look this up because we're gonna have to do a rewind about this next week. They had this thing. Parker Lewis can't lose. What did I say? Sings the blues. What are we talking about? Parker Lewis <laughs> was a show. Um, oh, the early nineties. Okay. So it ran from 90 to 93. Um, and it's the, the, it says Parker Lewis is a teenager who apparently can't lose. He's cute, cool, popular, hip, and gets away with anything. It's just like a sitcom about high school, but they had this like thing where they would get together and they would be like, synchronize your watches. What a, what a like dorky thing. And then they would go on and do their like little adventure or whatever. And, um, I want to like synchronize our hope circuits. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. Yeah. Everyone go find a tiny little joy. We can collectively do that and then heal. Yeah. And everyone will benefit from it. Yeah. I'm going to go like find this on YouTube. Parker Lewis can't lose. Someone knows what I'm talking about. Especially when he sings the blues. <laughs> That's, that would have been a very different show. <laughs> oh, shit. It rhymes. Okay, bye. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks, Ryder writer. writer. Write us um, at thetraumatapes at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram. Please um, subscribe and rate and comment because that's super helpful. We want to do a Q&A episode. So I posted a story this morning. If you have a short question that's not a full story and you want it answered, um, just hit us up on Instagram and we will get to it when we do that. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>